we're not positing as free banking merely what we like. That is not what free banking is. Free banking is our best guess at what a free market banking system would have looked like if the government had stayed out of it all along. In our modern world, money is undergoing a technological revolution. Bitcoin and cryptocurrency threaten the status quo, while governments and central banks are imagining their own hyper-centralized CBDCs, an imminent threat to personal and economic freedom. In the middle of all of this, pro-liberty academics, entrepreneurs, and Bitcoiners are having heated debates about the nature of the banking system, its flaws, and its history. In this episode of Liberty Curious, I sat down with free banking proponent George Selgin, Senior Fellow and Director Emeritus of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives at the Cato Institute. We discussed the history of money and how it is not new for governments to abuse or mismanage it. We explore the different opinions around money and fractional reserve banking and what a Bitcoin standard might actually look like. Anyway, let's talk about pleasant stuff like fractional reserve. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about money. Let's talk about banking. Let's talk about all of these debates that have been going on around this stuff, I find it really fascinating because I look, George, and I see that there's all of these, let's call them freedom people and people who study the banking system or who are, you know, innovators or entrepreneurs in the space uh, who believe in monetary or economic freedom. But then there's some division among those people, largely having to do with Bitcoin, fractional reserve banking, free banking, um, what the history of the banking system look like, and what the future of the banking system will or should look like. So it's just, there's a lot in there. Indeed. And I, I think it's really important to distinguish, and some of these people you're talking about don't do it uh, adequately, in my opinion. Distinguish between statements about what has been true in the past and conjectures about what might be true in the future. Now, um, <laughs> such conjectures are, of course, um, open-ended in the sense that you can't, you can't say they're wrong. Uh, they could be right. And I don't say that they're wrong. If somebody wants to make a prediction about Bitcoin taking over the world, I might say I don't think it's likely and I have said that, uh, uh, at least I don't think it's likely to displace the dollar and that sort of thing. thing. But, but, uh, but I don't pretend to know that it can. When I make statements about the past, I'm not implying anything about the future. I'm just saying what was what. And mm -hmm. uh, I find a common habit among my critics or opponents in these discussions about uh, Bitcoin is that of taking my statements uh, about the past and kind of twisting them or twisting the discussion as if it were about the future. So I'll say, look, there's never been anything prevent, fractional reserve banking has always been the popular choice in the past. And they'll say, oh, but in the future, that's not going to be true. I said, okay, well, that's okay. That might be true, but it has yeah. nothing to do with my statement. Right, right. And that's actually something that I've been thinking about with Bitcoin, um, particularly, because if I understand correctly, it is a different system than anything that's existed before. Yes, 
It is. Can you explain how? Like, how do you see it being different than what you've studied? Well, I actually wrote a piece about this when Bitcoin was still pretty new, um, where I pointed to the distinct characteristics of Bitcoin by way of saying that it didn't it didn't qualify exactly as either a kind of private fiat money or uh, a commodity money in the usual sense, like gold or silver or cowrie shells. And, um, and, uh, and that's because it shares some features of each. It's not, uh, it's not a natural commodity, of course. It's not a mm -hmm. commodity in the, in the sense of having any uses other than as a financial asset. You can't eat it. You can't wear it. You can't... Uh, you know, uh, guild cover building uh, cupolas with it and that sort of thing. On the other and and it's not something that's naturally scarce. There's no there's no such thing as a natural source of it, and there's only so much there. Like, uh, oh, I don't know, coal. It's mm -hmm. it or gold. It, it is something that's artificial, like fiat money. It's been created like fiat money. It's only a financial asset like fiat money, but it's scarce. It's scarce in an inevitable way, kind of like gold. We know that no one can make more than 21 million units of the stuff, or even that many, ever. We even know how rapidly it's going to be produced and where it be going to be produced and, and when it'll reach that limit. But we also know that the limit can't be changed. Um, and uh, at least uh, it's very difficult to change. So um, it has that characteristic in common with gold, but it also has in common with fiat money the fact that it's artificial, the fact that there is no non-monetary use, uh, the fact that uh, changes in non-monetary demand for the stuff, by which I mean non you know, demand for it is something other than a financial asset, demand for it to, to wear or to gild buildings yes. with. Uh, those things are not relevant, and that's good. Uh, that's an advantage in some respects. So it, it's, it's a new kind of thing, for sure, new kind of thing. And I also wrote in that article, for what it's worth, that its newness means that it could potentially have qualities that are better than anything we've had in the past. Or if Bitcoin couldn't have exactly those qualities, uh, something could, something like it could. We could imagine a different algorithm, uh, but say, the same in spirit to that mm -hmm. of Bitcoin, that gives us something where the supply behavior is a little more sophisticated it's not absolutely going to come to a certain number and then stop, but could change, uh, could grow steadily over time. There's all kinds of possibilities that could be programmed to uh, uh, a different synthetic commodity, which is what I call Bitcoin, a different yeah. synthetic, to make a different synthetic commodity that has uh, uh, advantages even over Bitcoin. And do you see uh, cryptocurrency as being a non-synthetic commodity as well? Like, do you think that 
cryptocurrency could uh, well uh, this gets into semantics but mm-hmm. if cryptocurrency means something like bitcoin where there's no convertibility into something else there's no link to something else there's no redeemability uh then yeah they're all synthetic commodities uh ethereum's and it's a synthetic commodity too but a stable coin is not right. a synthetic commodity because they're a stable pegged. coin is pegged and at least some of them are pegged through redeemability of of some sort and those are really more like today's bank monies their ious so those are not synthetic commodities they're not basic potential basic monies or standard monies a bitcoin is mhm mhm i've actually spoken about that in depth with thomas hogan about how stable coins are kind of like banknotes essentially that's right they're kind they're like banknotes with the important difference that uh, almost all of them uh, that i'm aware of that are redeemable at all uh mm-hmm. put some considerable constraints on uh, redeemability so unlike a, an old fashioned banknote you know you couldn't go with a a one uh a, let's say a 5 pound bank of england note you could go to your bank and say here give me some coins mm-hmm. uh with small amounts of a lot of these stable coins you're out of luck and you may face some barriers even exchanging large amounts of them uh, and in some cases and i don't this think this is necessarily a bad thing in fact under some circumstances it can make sense in some cases the issuers reserve the right to uh, contractually suspend the redemptions and have done so so oh. all of these things should be taken into account uh, yeah right the right so in these systems is not complete it's not always cheap it's not absolute and there's also a lot of heat on them from regulators right um and we've seen that i don't know if you've read about operation choke point 2.0 uh what do you think of that well <laughs> um <laughs> there are there are all kinds of reasons good and bad why uh regulators uh are uh, really giving stablecoin issuers a hard time everything from their concern that uh they offer ways to for people to get around the know your customer and anti money laundering laws that that banks are supposed to abide by uh, mm-hmm. there's fear that uh the failure of these issuers can have contagion effects that adversely affect other financial institutions including banks uh there are all kinds of concerns and as i say i think some of them are misguided some of them may not be uh, of course it all depends on what you think about <laughs> money laundering laws for example but um but there's certainly i think reason to suspect that panic is actually informing a lot of the attitudes today of regulatory authorities towards stable coins that they're overreacting and instead of seeing how by uh providing for stable coins spe- especially by allowing their issuers to part a greater ability to participate in 
the established payment networks to be part of those networks and regulating them accordingly. Uh, by preventing that, the authorities are actually making it harder for uh, truly stable, stable coins to be established. The most obvious example of this is that um, clearly, as, as many critics of, of, um, of banking uh, maintain, uh, and quite correctly, nothing is safer than to have a, 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 an IOU that's 100% backed by the stuff it promises to pay. We all agree that that's the safest. It's not always the, the most economical or best arrangement, but it's certainly the safest. Well, the only way a stable coin issuer can do that now, have 100% reserves, would be if it held actual Federal Reserve notes, you know, in a big vault somewhere, which is, by the way, itself not exactly safe. It, it actually involves the risk of theft. Um, because, and this is because, uh, the Federal Reserve won't allow stablecoin issuers to have access to reserve accounts with it, which are the way banks keep most of their reserves and do so pretty safely. They have credit balances at the Fed. And so as long as the Fed doesn't go broke somehow, and I can't see how that would happen, even though it can lose money hand over fist, uh, the, the reserve balances are the way to go if you really want 100% reserves and the safety that goes with it. And yet the Fed regulators are saying, we don't want, essentially they're saying, we don't want to allow uh, stablecoin issuers to become part of our payments system and to participate in it directly like banks because they're too dangerous. <laughs> they're saying that. And then they're also, by saying that, they're saying, we're not going to let them become less dangerous by making it easy for them to have 100% reserve. We're not even going to make having 100%. We're not even going to let them have reserve accounts on the condition that they maintain 100% reserve. When right, they rejected, yeah, yeah. Custodia, right, is what you're and talking when about. When they rejected Custodia's account, this was essentially the arguments they made. Oh, they're dangerous because they, they're dangerous and therefore we don't want to give them reserve accounts. And they say in their in their response to Custodia, they, they say, oh, Custodia is actually going to be dangerous because if we give them a hundred, the ability to maintain a hundred percent reserves, why? Because then they'll have to earn money other ways, right? They can't earn it. They'll earn some interest. They might earn interest on the balance. That would be up to the Fed too, right? But hmm. but that if they don't make enough interest, if their plan to operate on the basis of a hundred percent reserve somehow makes them have to undertake under other activities. Why then uh, that could be dangerous? We're not sure they're able to do it. We're not sure that they're going to be profitable. So you can't win for losing, right? Hold 100% reserves. If you say you're not going to have 100% reserves, then you're too dangerous. If you say, oh, okay, we're going to have 100% reserves, then, well, you might not be profitable. Therefore, you're not going to succeed. Therefore, you're going to be too dangerous. In one way or the yeah. other, you're going to be too dangerous. Right. I, right it's right. a disgusting document. I'll come out right out and say, uh, you know, I, uh, yes, I'm a Fed critic, but I don't call everything they do disgusting. Their arguments dismissing Custodia 
justifying their rejection of Custodia's master account application. That is a disgusting document, and I urge anyone who thinks otherwise to take a good critical look at it because uh, it's truly, <laughs> it defines what one means by lawyers' arguments when when that expression is used pejoratively. <laughs> this and is a so, great example. So, so what's happening here then, George, is that basically, like how I see it, is that it looks like they just don't want the competition. It doesn't look like it's something that's just purely out of fear where they're just afraid that these things will fail, but they're using this as an excuse because they don't want to have to compete with that because I know Custodia as well would be involved in Bitcoin and things like that. And I think that perhaps they see that as as the biggest competition, right? I think that there are all kinds of things involved. Mm -hmm. I do... I actually don't think that fear that these things will compete with the Fed itself is a big factor, though it may be part of the story. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure fear that these things will compete with ordinary banks who are the Fed's constituents. Uh, I think that's probably more important. And finally, I do think fear is part of it. Bureaucrats are scaredy cats. Uh, they, they, they. There's a. There are good theories that explain why, given two possible types of errors they can commit, the error of uh, allowing something that then goes bad, and the error of not allowing something that could go very well. It could be a good thing. They almost always prefer to avoid the first error because it's more conspicuous when they fail the other uh, that way. That is, whenever things go wrong, uh, if people can blame a regulator for having allowed it, uh, and of course they generally can, they do. Whereas mm -hmm. regulators seldom get in trouble for prohibiting things, or they get in less trouble than they would if they allow something to happen and then it goes south. So that's a very typical bureaucratic reaction. And I think it obviously does have something to do with fear. They fear the repercussions of not preventing or prohibiting something that then ends up causing trouble. And what are the kinds of repercussions that regulators can actually face like in the real world? What, what does it look like? Well, that's a great question because... The, the plain truth of the matter is that the repercussions they face are pretty meager. Uh, that is, uh, unlike uh, the repercussions a private businessman faces when he, he or she makes a mistake that can include you know, losing your whole investment. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, the Fed people don't have that kind of skin in the game. Uh, they only have to worry about the opprobrium that will be heaped on them if they make a mistake. But this seems to be enough, you know. It's kind of like what Kissinger said about academic politics. <laughs> he said <laughs> people take strong positions because the stakes are so low, and and uh, and I think that that's something like that is going on uh, here as well. Bureaucrats are very afraid to be caught not regulating something uh, that then uh, turns out to cause trouble. And we see this in the FDA, you know, it's it's all about prohibiting drugs unless they are absolutely convinced that they're safe. 
regardless mm -hmm. of what their potential benefits could be. I think this is just a very common reaction. Um, and uh, and let's face it, it's it's very low costs, right? So if you say, well, the costs of bureaucrats making one kind of error rather than the other, the cost of the, them doing so isn't really that great. And you're right. But the cost of them not making, not uh, the cost of them, uh, uh, um, the cost of them doing what they do, which is prohibiting things even when they could be really desirable, that cost is even smaller to them. That's the point. And the right. decisions these bureaucrats make aren't based on the absolute costs they face from doing A instead of B, but only on the relative costs. And they're going to choose the thing that has the, rel the relatively smaller cost to them. And that's what's going on. Wow. It's pretty crazy. So, you know, I mean... That's the thing is that in looking in this whole big picture of what's going on with the economy, with the bank failures, with the regulators, with some people decrying fractional reserve banking, with other people saying, no, fractional reserve is not the problem. Like it, it's it's all basically that you have people at the end of the day who are calling these shots who, as you say, don't have skin in the game, right? And so it just kind of continues in the way that it's going despite all of the kind of arguments that are happening. Um, so what do you think is is going to happen moving forward with all of these things, with the stable coins, uh, with custodia? Do you think um, that they're going to, with Bitcoin too, like what do you think is going to be permissible according to the regulators in the future? Well, I'm afraid that um, the Fed has, with its custodia and some other decisions, I think the Fed has made its position very clear uh, and and not just towards custodia. I think custodia is, is, is really just uh, um, uh, meant to be uh, an example. a warning. An yeah. example, yeah. Pour encourager les autres, as they said about Admiral Bing. Uh, the idea is to let everybody know that uh, they are not planning to let stable coins and other kinds of cryptocurrency uh, mingle with the established payment system or uh, uh, parts of or extensions to it that are official, like FedNow. They are not going to let these things commingle. Mm -hmm. They are going to treat stable coins and their issuers, even when they get bank charters, uh, and, and uh, uh, that, that, uh, that uh, as um, persona non grata in the regular payment system, that's what they have basically told us. So they, on the one hand, they they paid a lot of lip service to developing guidelines and how they were going to deal with investor account applicants fairly and squarely. But now they've let the cat out of the bag and basically said, if you have anything to do with stable coins or cryptocurrency, forget about it. That's what, that's what their decision means. And I'm afraid, therefore, that I think the prognosis for uh, um, real progress here which in my opinion, and I know a lot of cryptocurrency people disagree with this, but particularly when it comes to stable coins and US dollar stable coins, these things are only gonna be able to work safely and efficiently if they can be part of the established payment system. That is, if they can be connected to it. 
and if the issuers uh, or the issuers' banks can be connected to that system. And so here you're talking so, about stablecoin, though not Bitcoin. I want to just differentiate. No, Bitcoin there. is not dependent on it. But what what the problem that Bitcoin uh, faces here is that all the exchanges and things that might benefit from having access to the dollar payment system are struggling. Of course, this is part also part of what Custodia meant to to do. It's and so basically they're not letting any links exist that could even make it just just to make it easier to buy and sell Bitcoin, for example. Of course, Bitcoin can survive without these links. And it mm -hmm. won't suffer in the way that uh, U.S. dollar stable coins will suffer from their absence. That's right. Bitcoin mm -hmm. will survive. Stable coins may also survive, as they've done so far. But this puts a real limit on how effective they can be as alternative exchange media to bank-issued stuff, let alone to the stuff issued by the Federal Reserve itself. So if we're talking about private substitutes for U.S. dollars, uh, banks clearly are being given a, uh, an advantage, and particularly banks that don't have anything to do with stablecoin, right. uh, stablecoins, and stablecoin issuers are being put at a disadvantage. This is a this is an entry barrier. It's a government entry barrier. There's no so I, no other way to describe it. So as you've said about. Um not having a crystal ball, basically, not being able to see exactly what will happen in the future. Of course, we can't know, but you've studied the banking system and its history going way back, you know, in different countries as well. Um, and so are there other examples of times when regulators have made it impossible for certain technologies or competing uh, monies to, to take hold? Oh, sure. Sure, all the time. Um, to be, give the most obvious, uh, uh, obviously analogous example, governments have snuffed out uh, private issuers of circulating paper money and have, in this case, they haven't favored the banks. They, they put up barriers to the bank's ability to, to compete with their central banks. And so the central banks have been giving an, an outright monopoly of paper currency, which sadly most economists assume is a good thing because mm. they don't know the history very well, to be frank. And, um, and, uh, or they only know the U.S. history badly. And, and, uh, the result is that, um, we don't, we de we've had um, for a very long time now, depending on which country you're concerned with, you have not had any financial, real financial innovation with paper currency or the private development of substitutes. I think that if the banks were still issuing their own paper currency or were still allowed to, some time ago we would have seen electronic substitutes for this stuff. But the same statutes that took banks out of the paper currency business, I think, were read as eliminated their incentive to innovate in that area you can't really innovate when you don't have a product anymore to begin with <laughs> to innovate yeah. from and so what happened is that stable coins came as it were from outside the banking system as a new technology that 
might have been developed within it if it not had been if it hadn't been for the history, right? Because technology doesn't belong to any specific industry. Uh, but in this case, it was outsiders who said, "Oh, we see an opportunity here that banks have uh, kind of given up on. Let's see what happens if we try to do it in their place." And ultimately, these issuers have found that they too could use some integration with the banking system. Um, anyway, so currency is paper currency is a historic example. Coinage, coinage was the earliest, right? Governments very quickly, with rare exceptions, monopolized the production of coins. And anyone who thinks they did it because the private sector couldn't make little round discs that were uniform and reliable is a fool. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> this, <laughs> the scholarship in this area is full of, full of fools on the subject. In fact, of course, uh, as your audience will probably understand, the reason why governments since ancient times monopolized coinage is because there were fiscal advantages to doing so. It, that is, it's precise, it was precisely because occasionally they could then debase the coins and right. abuse the power of coinage. <clears throat> their monopolies <clears throat> to do just what the dumb economists think they were trying to prevent the private sector coiners from doing. And we know from it, the rare episodes of competitive private coinage that the tendency in those cases was the opposite. It was that the best private coiners would survive, the most reliable ones, and the other ones would go out of business, just, mm -hmm. just like people who make, you know, uh, uh, just like people who make uh, safety pins and and uh, screws and nuts, you know, a company that produces a screw that doesn't meet any of the existing standards is not going to stay in business very long. You know, oh, yeah. we're going to make our screws a little smaller to save money. Uh -uh. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. But when the government does it, it's you know, tant pis. You just people yeah, just have to. Put up with they, it. they can decide to exactly. They can decide that they are going to make uh, screws how they want. <laughs> yeah, or whatever. So, the 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 usual. The, I mean, the, this is a mon. This is so mundane, but it has to be said. <clears throat> the 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 usual arguments about the advantages of competition all apply perfectly. With no, there's no problem as to why they shouldn't fit for coining. There's none. Mm -hmm. But economists have managed to convince themselves that coinage should be uh, uh, a government monopoly and that the private sector couldn't do it well. And I'm afraid that this reflects something that that um, I now feel very strongly about. And the econ economics profession is full of people who devote their efforts to just rationalizing whatever it is that exists. Instead of thinking critically about it and asking whether there's really any good reason for it, and you see this all the time, uh, and and, uh, and you know, for whatever reason, I, I I've never I've never been bothered by the fact that people do X, the governments do X, uh, uh, into uh, feeling compelled. I've never felt compelled to assume that because the governments have done something for a long, long time, that that means that 
it can't be done any other way. And uh, I, I, I just wish more of my fellow economists were open-minded about these things. Some conventions are conventions for bad reason. And do you think that this is just because of the way that Keynesian economics took over, that people are very influenced by that? No? No, what it is has it? nothing to do with Keynes. Keynes has become a, a silly kind of a popular whipping boy for libertarians mm. and conservatives. Uh, they they don't know what Keynes, most of them have no idea what Keynesian economics is, where it came from, how different it is than other stuff. And and instead, uh, they 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 just Keynesian is just a it's a word of a program. It just mm -hmm. it's a synonym for I don't like it uh, yes. uh, for something that the people don't like, and they they, they um, and and it's silly for all kinds of reasons. One is that the most fundamental uh, claim of Keynesian economics which is that occasionally uh, uh, things go bad because people aren't spending enough uh, one way or the other. It's true. It does happen. It does happen. Uh, investment collapses, could be consumption, but it's usually investment and uh, can collapse for all kinds of reasons. The government can be to blame. Uh, central banks can be to blame. It often has to do with the failure of the banking system because what a banking system is supposed to do is uh, convert our desire to save with it into a corresponding uh, uh, into corresponding loan making, right? So if I'm trying to accumulate deposits at my bank and others are too, and nobody's trying to decumulate uh, that triggers or should trigger the 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 a corresponding growth in 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 lending by the banking system what that means is as i cease to spend money somebody else will spend in my place and the total flow of money through the economy will be maintained what what uh, uh what what keynes argued and he wasn't by the way this wasn't original particularly <laughs> though he succeeded in getting more attention to it than others had, uh, was that um, when this happened, steps have to be taken, the government have to make, make or the central bank, or if it has one, and by then most countries did, has to take steps to fix the problem. And and uh, uh, I would argue, and others in of, of the free banking persuasion would argue that when you have a good private banking system in the first place, instead of relying on central banks, why that's just exactly what it tends to do. It tends to make sure that, that the banks tend to lend more when people try to save more. And it usually works okay. Anyway, the argument that there's a case uh, that, that it's possible that too little spending will cause trouble and that something has to be done and that governments may have to do it to get the spending back up that's the kind of central argument of, of Keynes in policy. We could argue about how they think spending should be revived, fiscal versus monetary policy and all that. But the fundamental claims are, you know, there's nothing wrong with them. And they're not original with Keynes. If you go back before uh, 1936, when Keynes wrote the general theory, you find in the United States and elsewhere, plenty of other people who more or less argued the same thing. 
1936, it was actually kind of old hat to claim that uh, depressions or recessions are caused by people not spending enough and that fiscal or other policies are needed to revive spending. So um, that's that's there's more to Keynesian economics than that, of course. And I'm not saying that all of it is uncontroversial or fine or whatever. I am mm-hmm. saying that this kind of kernel of it is not something that people should be going out of their way to condemn. Yeah, well, I mean, it makes sense for me um, that people would give it a bad rap in general because they're kind of looking for a blanket uh, way to kind of explain what they don't like, you know? And I think that the source of that is thinking like, yeah, yeah, like it is control really. Like people, I think when they're pushing back against Keynesianism, that's what they mean, I think. Yeah, well, Keynes didn't invent bad government policies. Right. In monetary, in the realm of money, those policies, as we were saying before, they go way, way back. So mm-hmm. it didn't take Keynes to, to, to inspire governments to abuse money or to mismanage it. And <clears throat> the advice he did give, as I said, at least some of it, wasn't particularly bad. Um, oh, yeah, some of his arguments were bad. Gold standard people will, of course, dislike Keynes because he didn't have, he didn't like the gold standard. He was definitely a constructivist. He, he envisioned uh, managed paper money, saw it as ideal, tended to downplay the, the, the dangers of abuse of, of managed fiat standards. And that was naive. Uh, like a lot of, a lot of, like a lot of, um, uh, let's say liberal interventionists. He tended to assume that smart people like him would be in charge and would see to it that everything was done right and didn't really worry yes. too much about yes. uh, the possible abuses that could take place. So I'm not trying to defend everything that Keynes argued, but I am saying that treating him as a bogeyman, as a kind of symbol of everything that's wrong about economics or government is is silly and um, and and certainly it's a mistake to to imagine <clears throat> that uh, it was only when Keynes came around that we started yes. to have it's a human really tendency government policy yeah. that's right I mean so so it just seems to be like that's what people uh, look towards as a term to just kind of talk about what they don't like, as I said, but I mean, this traces back and back and back and back and back, like it's human tendency uh, to want to have these accumulations of power, to have good intentions and then to abuse that power, all of that kind of thing. Um, (laughs) It's people like to be able to, you know, summarize their likes and dislikes with a single word, or in this case, a single person's name. Um, on the left, you say capitalism, and what you mean isn't some coherent thing that we all can understand the meaning of. You mean all the things about life that you don't like, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and you mm-hmm. call it that. And in the same way, some uh, conservative and libertarian people, you know, all the things they don't like about what governments do in the way of economic policy, they call Keynesianism. Right. It's just a name, but it's right. inaccurate. And capitalism, well, you know, maybe or maybe not, uh, the, 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 use, the, the pejorative use of capitalism 
is correct if you define capitalism explicitly as all the things you don't like and then okay <laughs> but if you mean if you include the free market or or want to confuse people but want to make people if you really are referring to the free market then you've got you know you've got to start uh, uh clarifying that what in, you mean uh, yeah. yeah yeah so these terms I, like, it's perfectly okay to criticize Keynesian economics if that's really what you're criticizing. It isn't right. okay to criticize it if you're just using Keynesian economics as a name or covering term for a whole bunch of things, some of which have to do with Keynes and many of which don't. Yes, yes, yes. No, that makes sense. And I mean, I think that it's, you brought a good example of capitalism as well. It's that people either don't have the full definition or they have a different definition for it. And it's really just kind of the things that they don't like, but they don't necessarily have a better way of describing it. Um, but you brought up free markets there. And I just thought of a question that I had wanted to ask you before we even got on here, if I had a chance. And so I think this is a good opening for it. So You've studied the banking system, the history of the banking system, your proponent of free banking, um, and you point to the Scottish system and in some instances the Canadian system uh, from, you know, hundreds of years ago as being kind of good examples of free banking, though not perfect. Um, but my question is, have we ever seen an actual free market anywhere? In banking or generally? Yeah, in banking and generally. Like, and maybe no. you can distinguish between well, the two. No, you know, now all these things are I, what Max Weber called ideal types, right? You have an mm -hmm. ideal type. Is, we can contemplate the thing even if we don't ever see a perfect example of it. And in most of life, there are no perfect examples of every, anything. You know, you pick a rose, it's probably got a flaw in it. <clears throat> But we can conceive of a perfect rose. Why not? Um, and in the case of economists <clears throat> deal in ideal types all the time, because they have to, because the perfect specimens are just not out there. And so when they talk about competition, they have an ideal type in mind. When they talk about free trade, it's an ideal type. It's not a thing. And they can point to examples that are relatively close and use them to understand the thing they're talking about. And that's what they do. But if you ask, is there a place where there's absolutely pristine, pure free trade? The answer is no. There are places like Hong Kong that long practice something very close and, and others as well, but nothing perfect. In banking, there are places like those you mentioned, Scotland, Canada, and some others that in many respects approach the ideal type of free banking, which is is a banking system, which has to be defined again, right? It's a banking system where, uh, apart from enforcing contracts as written between bankers and their customers, uh, and otherwise enforcing ordinary laws that apply to all businesses, the government doesn't other uh, doesn't really enforce uh, or interfere with. Uh, the conduct of banks by limiting entry or by preventing them from having branches or by telling them what kind of investments they have to make or or what are their uh, stipulations, their contracts with their customers can or cannot include. They don't do any of that. They let the interest rates be free. 
So there's a whole bunch of things banks are allowed to do. Now, if you look and and very little, apart from you know cheating uh, or and absconding that sort of thing, that they that they 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 they're not allowed to do. That governments won't let them uh, let them do. Now, if we look around the world, for examples, we don't find pristine one. So, for example, in in um, Canada, the government chartered all the banks and it exercised ultimate control on who could be a bank and who couldn't. There wasn't anything like a free incorporation law that applies to other industries. Every every bank had to get a special legislative act. So that's not freedom. Scotland did allow free entry, so it's better in that respect. But if you keep looking at the details of these systems, you find that the Scottish system had some prohibitions and some departures from perfect freedom, like the fact that after 1765, the Scottish banks couldn't issue very small notes. They were prohibited from the, they had a maximum or minimum size of the bank note that they could issue. Anyway, the point is no pristine examples. But if we look at a whole bunch of systems and try to look at what the free components of those systems, we can piece together a picture using evidence from all these different systems of what a really free system would look like and use that evidence as the basis for theorizing about such an ideal free banking system. And that's exactly what Larry and I did. First thing we ever, I ever published with Larry, which was part of my dissertation, was an essay called The Evolution of a Free Banking System. What we do there is rationally reconstruct, or if you like, reconstruct, what a totally free market banking system would look like, how it would operate. We may have to justify our explanations. We can't just pick evidence we like and put it in. We have to say why we think this is evidence of what would happen under freedom, you know, and this is not, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And we do. Mm -hmm. Maybe we don't do it perfectly, but we make a, you know, a good college try. And that's the theory. That's the system the rest of my work theorizes about. So it's an ideal type system that it theorizes about. And, um, you know, people, people who say, oh, you know, in a free market, there wouldn't be fractional reserves or whatever, make claims like that. Um, well, they need to rationalize or defend or justify those claims in a manner like what Larry and I do. And they don't. They just say it. <laughs> I see. And, 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 yeah, and so and we're not positing as free banking merely what we like. That is not what free banking is. Free banking is our best guess at what a free market banking system would have looked like if the government had stayed out of it all along. That's what we're trying right. to that, that makes a lot of sense. And that I had read a lot of articles, um, you know, in waiting to talk to you. And that's kind of what I had seen of the gist of it, right? So the free banking system, like an ideal free banking system would have the market decide, like maybe there would be fractional reserve banks in that system. And there would also be fully reserved banks, people would be able to choose what was appropriate. And for what, you know, for different purposes as well, like, for example, let's say if we take, um, the example of a fully reserved bank, um, you might want to have 
your savings in there, your hard savings in there. And then you might want to have some of your other money, like your float in a fractional reserve system, because doesn't also a fractional reserve system allow you to get a mortgage and things like that? Like, how could you... How could you get a mortgage, let's say, if it was a fully reserved system and that was all that existed? So let's not confuse two things. Okay. There is a state, uh, there, there's a lot, you could prove without any evidence, uh, you don't have to look around the past to say that a free banking system is one where people can choose. Of course, mm-hmm. that is definitely part of it, a priori, if you like. What Larry and I are trying to do, what we think we do, is to show, uh, using evidence, what kinds of arrangements people and banks together would choose based on um, actual experience and, mm-hmm. and, on, on, and in some cases, simply the logic of profit maximization. So, so there's more meat on our depiction of free banking than the mere logic of the meaning of freedom. There's more to it than that. It is also empirically informed. And that empirical information tells us, among other things, that the overwhelming result of people's choices would tend to be banks that engage in fractional reserve banking. And, and that why is, is that? Correct. Why well, is because that? The, because Apparently, people found the advantages uh, of these arrangements, which, by the way, the examples, the empirical evidence we draw upon isn't from any banks or banking systems that had deposit insurance or other guarantees that would, as it were, slant the deck in favor of fractional reserves. We're we're not Mm -hmm. drawing on any of that. We're drawing on systems where there was no... um, we are very careful to not base any of our conclusions or speculations about what freedom would bring about on on things that happen in the absence of complete freedom. All right, we're only looking where there's no government slanting the deck of any kind, and so we find overwhelmingly in country after country, you know, it's it's the only almost the only game in town. And uh, and uh, despite lack of government props, now the reason is that p- people like interest, and they like to be, and they like to have exchange media that are convenient, and they don't like to have to pay a lot for it. One obvious fact that is overlooked has been overlooked by the critics of free banking is that you you couldn't have a banknote that circulated from hand to hand, and that's a very much more convenient than gold based on fractional reserves. You can't do that. It's not possible. Why? Well, a 100% reserve institution has got to collect the storage fees and other fees. It's not earning any interest from the deposit, which is here, a literal deposit it keeps on hand of gold yes. coin, right? Yes. It's not earning anything from the deposit. It has to charge, has to send a bill to the people yes. who sold its storing. You can't do that with bearer certificate notes or bearer certificates that circulate from hand to hand because they by their very nature they're anonymous. Their holders are anonymous. So either right. the poor schmuck who puts the gold there in the first place pays for it forever after no longing having the claim to it, or you've had to figure out some way to keep track of who has those IOUs 
I shouldn't call them that. They're, they really are warehouse certificates in this case. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to keep track of them so you can send them a bill. Now today yeah, you're paying you might rent, to, basically. Yeah, that's paying pay rent. The rent. Yeah. yeah. You can't you couldn't do that then. Today, you know, in theory, you could have some fancy thing where you can track them, but we we worry about that, right? But mm-hmm. uh, anyway, in the past it wasn't possible. So people who wanted to have more convenient exchange media uh, uh, basically <laughs> had to uh, truck with factional reserve banks, especially when it was paper money. But when it wasn't paper, when it was deposits subject to check or other tra- uh, devices for transferring them, then they could earn interest if the bank made loans. And they like that too. They like that. They, people like interest. People like interest, we know from recent experience, people like interest even when they're really taking big risks to get a little bit more. They do it all the time. So in this case, of course, they were also taking risks, uh, as Adam Smith made clear in this very good discussion of this topic that everybody should read. Uh, They were taking more risks, but they were getting something in return. And banks were, of course, much riskier in the early days than in some of the you know, by by 1800, uh, those systems had, in many places had matured to the point where they could have very low reserve ratios. They had a lot of capital, mm-hmm. uh, but they could be very safe. They could be very safe because they, there was enough diversification of loans, etc. Uh, so this choice to make interest rather than store your money uh, was was not simply one that was for people who were you know risk loving ultimately they, they they didn't have to like risk because the risk was very small and so this was something that rothbard agreed with for a long time right and then suddenly i think in the 80s he turned around and said no actually fractional reserve banking is is no bueno <laughs> i so, don't know about that i don't know about that i thought he I actually think he was developing his opposition to fractional reserves much earlier. Okay, um, okay. I couldn't actually, right now, I couldn't put my finger on the earliest times when he did that, but I think that there are hints of it in some of his earlier pamphlets. Hmm. But it's certainly true that at some point, uh, if not all along, Rothbard convinced himself uh, that that fractional reserve banks were only so because uh, they misled their customers uh, and, 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 uh, and because the courts ultimately allowed them to get away with it. And, and the see. specific charge is that uh, the, the money, uh, the coins, uh, brought to the banks was brought to them for the purpose of safekeeping that the bankers never had permission to treat it as their own and then you know lend it mm-hmm. and that when they did so they were essentially defrauding their customers and it's only because the courts allowed them to get away with it and eventually developed the doctrines, legal doctrines that rationalized it, justified mm-hmm. it, or sanctioned it, that banking has developed the way 
it has. And, and Rothbard even uh, suggested that the mass of people had no idea what was going on even relatively in relatively recent times, um, if not still. Uh, and I know he did that because he would, uh, he argued seriously about needing to have, about the desirability of having what he called uh, 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 anti-fractional reserve uh, vigil bank vigilante squads who yes. would go around, you know, with loudspeakers telling everybody kind of Paul Revere like, you know, the banks are lending your money, the banks are lending your money. And the idea was to get everybody to start runs and force the banks to change their ways. Hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this was <laughs> this was not said in jest. And, and it's all wrong. It's all completely wrong. It's wrong as a matter of history. It's wrong as a matter of legal doctrine. It's wrong as a, as a matter of uh, practical uh, argumentation. And I could go on forever, and I have, <laughs> about all these things. Uh, just quickly, from the legal point of view, and I've written about this uh, at length, <clears throat> it's an old doctrine went back that went back to ancient times. I believe the original ideas uh, were from Jewish law. That, <clears throat> but it was, but they were incorporated into Roman law and ultimately into Anglo-Saxon law. That when you bring, uh, when you bring coins to any kind of uh, coin merchant, whether he's an exchange, doing exchange, money exchange, or a bank, or uh, any, anyone else, for deposit, deposit. <clears throat> the word is unfortunate, because what the principle says is that if you bring coins and they're loose, and you don't make in specific instructions to the contrary, the law considers the coins to be the property of their possessor, which, of course, becomes the banker, not the person who passes them over the counter. And there were very practical reasons for this, but the basic one was that, that uh, generally coins were fungible. And unless you could identify exactly who a coin belonged to, right, the specific coin, you couldn't treat it like other kinds of property or chattel. Uh, because the usual remedies couldn't be applied. The usual remedy is give it back, not give a coin back. Give that mm -hmm. coin back, right? And so on. There are a million reasons why this idea prevailed. But the corresponding ideal, which was a pretty, perfectly simple solution to the problem, was if you want to store your money, you bring it in a separate container and it's sealed, and the banker has to store that. And when you want it back, he gives you that very container and those very coins back. This is a very simple doctrine, right? right? So you brought loose coins. The ownership follows the coins. Uh, that is, the, the possessor of the coins is considered the bona fide owner of the coins. Unless there's a way to prove otherwise that those are really your coins, those specific coins are yours. And that... Doctrine is what informed all of modern banking, starting in England, uh, but also in Rome before, uh, uh, and, uh, and continues to do so. There was no point, despite what Rothbard says, 
where some stupid judge mucked things up by not understanding that the, the, the coins belong to the depositor. I that see. was the old or long established ancient doctrine. So and when Ralph you bring creates a story where the where a certain judge in England, you know, fouls uh, up things. And that I didn't see. happen. I yeah, see. it never happened. So when you bring your money to the bank, then you should know that this basically means that the bank owns your money while it's in their possession. That's correct. And so you're and a it's creditor. still true today, right? The legal, yeah. by the way, the legal doctrines now, they've evolved. So the, 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 the law that rationalizes this has changed, but the basic principle has. So there's a different, there are different legal arguments than there used to be. But it's still the case that when you go to a bank, let's say, just to make it concrete, I go to a bank, I hand them a suitcase of Federal Reserve notes, mm -hmm. <laughs> which would, of course, in practice, set off all kinds of alarms but forget about that <laughs> the minute i do those become the banker's property now this is where a lot of austrians uh, really confuse things does that mean i don't own anything anymore no it means i no longer own those paper notes but i own something else i've i've exchanged them what have i gotten in return i have the bank's iou I have a claim against the bank, which is a different financial asset. It's not the mm -hmm. same asset. I have an mm -hmm. IOU or a claim. I'm a creditor to the bank. Banker's my debtor. That's not the same as owning those paper notes. It's not the same as owning the money I brought. Now, <laughs> but I own something, and I own something very valuable because that claim is it's a bundle of rights including the right for demand deposits to get the an equivalent, not the same money, but the equivalent sum of money back on demand when I ask for it. Now, the bank is not violating that contract merely because it doesn't keep all of the notes on hand. It isn't violating the contract because it might not have the money if I ask for it. It only violates the contract if it if I actually ask for it and it doesn't come up with it right then and there. And that's another confusion. The Austrians, I have people constantly saying to me, the bank is, you know, couldn't pay, might not be able to pay, right? Okay, it might not be able to pay. That's called risk. That's not called violating a contract. That's called being risk, a risky situation. That's not the same thing. Risk is a bad possibility exists. Uh, it's not a bad possibility has been realized. Those are different. I see, uh, I see. Yeah, those aren't the same thing. The other thing that uh, I often have tossed at me is, oh, people don't know that the bankers lend their money because we, you know, we have a polls and things that have been conducted that show they don't know that. If you look at most of these polls, what they say is, something that, you know, they might ask the person, when you when you put your money in a bank or you have a bank deposit, who owns your money? You or the banker? Well, <laughs> that's not a good poll question. Yeah, it's not an accurate question. To not an accurate the question. Circumstances. The bank owns right. the, now owns the actual Federal Reserve money you gave it. But you own 
the claims on a bank, which are also money by the modern definition, right? We, we, we include those as part of the money supply. You still own money. You've traded one form of money that you used to own for another that you still own, that you now own. So you still own the money. The way you pose the question, in other words, can be very misleading. The person who thinks they still have money in the bank isn't necessarily confused about whether they still can go back and take take recover the same stuff they brought to the bank. Uh, they not, may not be confused about the fact that bankers lend, uh, use funds brought to them to make loans, not to put in storage. They may simply be speaking of the truth that they still own money exactly as much as they brought to the bank without bothering to distinguish, you know, they don't, they may not be, you know, able to articulate the fact that the money they own is not the same money they brought to the bank. But that doesn't mean they, that the bank is pulling the wool over their eyes. I see. So yeah, so I don't trust these poll questions a bit. I don't think that they necessarily say what people think they say. I'll say one so, more thing about this case. Yeah, sure, I, sure, sure. I've had by now roughly, oh, I'd say, you know, conservatively, let's say, I'll say half a million people tell me that the banks are pulling the wool over everyone's eyes. Now, half a million people, that's only the people I've heard this from. That's a lot of people. They all think that they're smarter than all those other people that they say are being fooled. That's chutzpah. Uh, mm. I don't think the mass of people are more stupid. I'm putting this as politely as I can. Yeah. <laughs> than all the people who keep telling me this. I don't think yeah. there's any evidence for it. I, instead, on the contrary, I think the people who are telling me this are pretty average Joes. So why should other yeah. average Joes be so much less intelligent than they are about this matter? I don't know. I see what you mean. I really see what you mean. So it's why why is there some secret? Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind not of a very like, well you know, kept secret if all these people know. <laughs> <laughs> so it begs the right. question to have this right. popular view, extremely popular, about something that nobody is supposed to know. But I, I could see how at the same time, you know, a lot of this is relative to people who are, you know, pro Bitcoin and kind of in that part of the movement. And just because Bitcoin is so different and there's there's this religious aspect to Bitcoin as well. And, and Bitcoiners, in a way, like there's this kind of belief that Bitcoin is kind of like this technology that's going to save humanity, right? Like there are very strong beliefs that people have about Bitcoin. And I think that that ties into that whole thing about kind of um, thinking that there's a secret, right? Like it's the same kind of mentality in a sense. Is that possible? It's possible, but I, I, I don't think that all Bitcoiners, and I'm not even sure most of them. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, not not all of them are fanatics. All right, we know we both know that. Right, some like them, I, they, I really yeah. like some Bitcoin, and I think that are. it's a great yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Some of them have this uh, fanaticism that that I find really uh, it really turns me off. Uh, mm -hmm. But some of them don't. And then, as for who, which of them think that fractional reserve banking is fraud, and which ones don't. I think that's another division. 
And I'm not right. sure that those things all mesh up Are together. Are mutually exclusive? Okay. It, okay, I see. Well, I'm not sure that the people, the Bitcoiners who think fractional reserve banking is fraud are also necessarily the ones who are fanatical about it. It may include some who aren't fanatical. It, there may be some fanatical ones who don't think fractional reserve banks. So I think these these different opinions cut across one another. Uh, uh, but I don't know how. Uh, mm -hmm. But I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't think it would be wise to suppose that even fanatical Bitcoiners all take the anti-fractional reserve view of things. I, I, I just not sure that's true at all. Well, the only the only reason that I kind of thought of that, and it's because I'm still trying to untangle all of these things. They're all new to me to think about, um, and it, it appears that Bitcoin wouldn't doesn't function. Uh, as a fractional reserve kind of system. It's like you, if you are holding your Bitcoin in cold storage, like you own those Bitcoin. It's like having. Yeah, fractional, well, bit, but that doesn't, that doesn't really mean much. Uh, as we said before, Bitcoin is a, is a base money, you know, mm -hmm. analogous to gold or to federal reserve notes, a little bit of each, right? It's yeah. a base money though. Now base money isn't a bank money. So there's no question of fractional reserves. Uh, the question is, that is, that is, there's no question of a Bitcoin or Bitcoins being fractional reserve money because they're not claimed to anything. Mm -hmm. So they don't mm -hmm. need any reserves. They are the reserve money or potential reserve money. The question is, in a world where Bitcoin money became standard, Bitcoin becomes the standard base money. It's only potential base money now, right? It's not the real, it's not really widely used as money, no matter how many people claim otherwise. If it did though, if there really were a Bitcoin standard where prices are quoted in Bitcoin, Bitcoin is the important fundamental medium of exchange, would there be such a thing as Bitcoin fractional reserve banks? That's the question. Yeah. And I've argued know. that I th I've argued that I think there could be for the some of the same, not all of the same, some of the same reasons why fractional reserve banking evolved on the basis of silver and gold and other commodity standards. Hmm. Hmm. Not all of them, because there's a big difference. And this has been pointed out to me quite correctly. Uh, with gold, it really is cumbersome to move or carry gold coins, move gold around physical gold. Whereas you can transfer Bitcoin relatively inexpensively. So claims against Bitcoin, fractionally back, don't have the same big advantage relative to actual Bitcoin for transacting that claims to gold had relative to gold itself. And that's true. That's true. Still... Still, uh, such claims can actually have even lower transaction transacting costs than Bitcoin. The Bitcoin isn't perfectly cheap to move around. We know that direct Bitcoin transfers can be slow, and uh, uh, and we know that there are even problems with things like Lightning Network. That it, it has not solved all the problems of moving Bitcoin around really expeditiously and cheaply. And those who bother to try will find, if they don't know already, that you can move dollars around in an instant from one bank account to another, and it doesn't cost a thing. 
for certain transactions. International is a little different. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the question, so there's already potential transactability advantages, some small ones for Bitcoin-based bank uh, um, promises that that would give people some reason for liking those. But there's also, once again, interest payments. That, I think, remains the more important reason why I think Bitcoin fractional reserve banks would still have a place in a Bitcoin standard, would have a place. Because people love interest, even when there's risk involved. Mm. And and uh, that isn't changing, because you cannot earn any interest on a Bitcoin. You can earn interest on a claim to Bitcoin at a fractional reserve Bitcoin bank, where when you put your money in the bank, most of it uh, is lent out, and only reserves of it are kept for the purpose of meeting demands from people like you. And the rest, even the reserves today could earn interest if they consist of balances at the Fed, which are nowadays earning modest rates of interest. But the other investments that the Bitcoin bank makes could earn considerably more. And that is where the temptation is going to come in, not for everybody. Uh, let's allow that. It's much more likely there mm-hmm. would be people who hodl their Bitcoin and don't use banks than hodl gold in the past instead of use banks. They were both. Um, in the past, by the way, plenty of people held gold. It, what there wasn't were a lot of 100% reserve uh, banks, so-called. But there were people who hodled gold, right? <laughs> Um, and that's going to be true for Bitcoin in the future. They, they, the, 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 but there will be plenty of others, in my opinion, and now I'm speculating about the future, who use Bitcoin banks uh, in the same way we, I mean, look at all the crazy cryptocurrency interest rate schemes out there, right? You know, mm-hmm. all these, uh, yeah. Uh, lending yes. schemes, there's complicated things where there's interest, and you know, some of which turn out to be very loosey goosey. But the point is, banking on, on this old fashioned principles with a Bitcoin foundation is a simple way to have uh, Bitcoin stable coins or deposits or whatever that bear interest and are not necessarily terribly risky, and plenty of people are going to go for it. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of comes back to what you're saying when you and Larry White were, were discussing free banking, right, and writing about this and studying it. It's that it's not about necessarily um, the ideal scenario, but what things actually look like and what people actually choose. And That's right. Yeah, this isn't yeah. there. You know, when, I, when we're talking about, when I make these statements, I'm not saying, I'm not making a statement about what I think is good. I'm not saying right. this is what people Moral judgments, right, I'm, right, right. I'm, I'm speculating about what I think people will do if they're free to choose. That's all I'm doing. Yes. Now, yes. I can tell you what I think that this is a wise choice or not, but why should you care? Why should anybody care? So, now, I mean, uh, but if you, do, but the, with the one connection between the normative and the positive here is that we, our audience, the people we're, ourselves and the people in, in, who are going to watch this, they like freedom and they think freedom is normatively a very good thing. Mm-hmm. And so it does matter then 
Uh, if I say, I think in a free society in the future with a Bitcoin stand, if it had a Bitcoin standard, people would be banking. Um, then if freedom is your thing, then you have to come to grips with that, right? If you think freedom is normatively good, well, then, uh, okay. People are free to choose. Here's one of the implications that you should right. consider. The, the, what right. Rothbard did, to get back to him, what Rothbard did was he... He used his own uh, norm. He had his own. He had different normative positions. One was like ours: freedom is a good thing. We like to have people be free. The other was uh, not so much. It, yeah. The other was that fractional reserve banking was bad because it can cause business cycles. I think Rothbard believed both things. Right? Freedom mm -hmm. is good. Fractional reserve banking was bad, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I don't. I don't think. Fractional reserve banking necessarily causes business cycles, but let's suppose it does. The problem where Rothbard went wrong was in trying to resolve this problem, this contradiction, if you like, that one thing that he liked uh, 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 might lead to something that he didn't like by saying that fractional reserve banking isn't really part of economic freedom. It's not really implied. And he came up, he concocted to be, you know, I'm sorry, I have to say, he concocted a, a bunch of legal history and banking history to, to do that. He mm. said, I don't, I don't like, I like freedom. I don't like fractional reserve banking because I think it's bad. I know we're losing signal because we're poaching five o'clock. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, <laughs> now, uh, therefore, I, I want to be able to argue that in a free society, we won't have fractional reserves. And I'm going to do that by saying that that uh, the only reason we do have them is because people cheated and lied and courts put up with it and all that. Well, George Selgin, uh, as you said, you are in Spain. It is approaching tapas hour and happy yes, hour is. and time and, for you and, to go. Yeah. Yeah. and enjoy that and the, beautiful and the place. internet here gets really <laughs> flaky as you get close to five o'clock as we've That's discovered right. the hard and as your audience is probably observing now yeah yeah it's not so bad though but i think it's a good place to wrap it i mean we could go down so many rabbit holes and i know that we touched on we went deeper in some subjects and touched on the surface of others but i love to speak with you more in the future about these things it's really been a pleasure having you on um, thanks kate anytime uh, you want to climb down a rabbit hole with me i'm happy to to, <laughs> to do so with you well, I hope that it could be, you know, in Spain, listening to some flamenco guitar on a patio in real life. I mean, that would be a nice be place arranged. to go down a rabbit it can hole. Be yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm, thank I'm you so here much. If you are gay. Yeah. You're very welcome, Kate. Talk to you again and soon. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, George. Bye.